Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word that you would speak and shape and fashion us in your glory, the likeness of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming back to this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians this morning to work our way through the first part of the second chapter. The letter is not a long one by any means. When compared to other letters of Paul like Corinthians, we looked at last year, or Romans, but it does present to us some important principles about living in this world with an eye on what is coming. Noting again, as I will, that each of the chapters end with some reference to the second coming of Jesus. It's for this reason the series has a subtitle, A Faith That Functions, because what is faith if it doesn't function? And what helps us have a functioning faith is the reminder that Jesus is coming back. Now last week we established something in relation to the model church that we met, the model church at Thessalonica, in the sense that here was a church functioning well. Here was a church that was healthy, healthy in the sense that it had the three main characteristics that the the Apostle Paul longs to see in any church. Faith, hope and love. And from that, this morning, I'd like to use the word model again, but apply it now to Paul and his co-workers. Now, the word will conjure up many things in your mind, from the model plane to the model on the catwalk to the role model or example. We know from experience which type of model the context demands. And the Apostle Paul was and is, of course, a model for all those who would be pastor teachers. Not the very model of a modern major general, but the very model of a holy pastor teacher. Now when it comes to that word holy, and you think about a holy man that Paul spoke about a little bit later in in the text, we have to stop and think. What does a holy man look like? I did some Googling of that and found a newspaper article that I'd spotted many years ago about a holy man in India. It was called Nailing His Faith and it read as followed. Having stood on sharp five centimetre nails for the better part of 20 years, There is little in the life that bothers this holy man. Among the millions attending the Hindu pilgrimage in northern India, the 67-year-old holy man cuts a modest figure. He stands alone on a small patch of ground. He beats a tiny gong and he relies on handouts from passing pilgrims who admire his extreme choice of spiritual penance. Since the age of 47, this holy man has spent a big chunk of each day standing on two foot-shaped blocks of wood, 
with vertical protruding nails digging into his bare feet. Although he draws a smaller crowd than the holy man who has had his right arm in the air for 20 years, he's not the least bit jealous. Now I find this interesting on many canons, but the one that stands out for me is how this man and his friend Lefty are described as holy men. Perhaps the word I would have chosen to describe them would be misguided, eccentric, but holy. I understand that in the Hindu religion, the term holy man refers to a man totally devoted to the practice of his religion. But if that is what a holy man is and does, then that could give us a whole new way of expressing what a holy man looks like. And let's translate that to the Apostle Paul. Can't you just hear Paul saying to the Thessalonians, you saw what a holy life I lived among you. You saw how every day I beat my head with a block of wood. You saw me plucking out my eyebrows barehanded. You were there when I dislocated all my fingers and all my toes. Doesn't quite match up, does it? It's because you and I know that a holy man or a holy woman is not one who causes ourselves pain or causes ridiculous things or does ridiculous things in the name of religion. But holiness has to do with the way we live, the manner of our conduct, the words that we use, the attitudes that we reflect that which is on the inside, that hopefully comes out when our mouths are open, reflecting that we are new creatures in Christ, born again by the Spirit and are clean within. So in these verses it's clear, I think, from what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, that Paul's Paul's holiness was along those lines of living a life that backed up supported, verified and authenticated the gospel message he preached to these people. His manner of life was such that he could say to them, you know what sort of life I lived among you and know that they would know exactly what he meant. He was a holy man who lived a holy life through a holy example And that holy example spoke volumes for the message that he proclaimed, which is the gospel. He didn't just preach the gospel, he lived out the gospel. Put that into context of chapter 1 of this letter, which introduced us to Paul the evangelist, who pastored and established and planted the church in Thessalonica by his faithful preaching. This second chapter then introduces us to Paul the pastor who nurtured the church in Thessalonica by a faithful example. In fact, in this chapter, Paul gives us three main word pictures that describe his ministry among them. And all three are quite far from the image we began with, with this block of this holy man standing 20 years on a block of nails but refer instead to the way he went about being 
a pastor, a preacher, apostle and servant of Jesus. In other words, an ambassador of Christ among these believers who were his spiritual children in the faith. Let's note them together. First, from verses 1 to 6, we see that Paul described himself as a faithful steward. Verse 4 tells us that Paul and his fellow workers saw themselves as men approved by God to be trusted with the gospel. It was not that Paul preached a message of his own making or from another man, but he preached God's message which God had entrusted to him as a steward. Now the word steward you won't find in the text and the word steward is not so well known these days but was well known in Paul's day to stand for one who owns nothing of himself but yet possesses and uses everything belonging to his master. One example would be Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, who was a steward in the household of Potiphar, who managed his master's goods and accounts, did everything he could to advance his master's welfare. In this sense, Paul saw that the gospel was like a treasure that God had entrusted to him to manage, to steward, and therefore he was responsible for using that, proving above all else that he was faithful in the way he did his work. Paul not only tells us that much, He gives us information about himself that shows how that was so. We know it because verses 1 to 2 talk about the manner of his ministry, how Paul had suffered much persecution previous to his visit to Thessalonica. But this did not just put him off. Just because there was much opposition to the preaching of the gospel, he was not going to be a quitter, but he would continue to preach with a holy boldness that characterised the apostles. Verse 3 tells us about the motive of his ministry. Unlike Paul, there were plenty who were preaching the gospel but using it as a cloak to cover themselves, to cover their greed. There were people with all sorts of wrong motives preaching the gospel, some hoping to get rich, others hoping to distort the message and deceive people. Paul would have none of that. His appeal, he said, sprang from a pure heart that others might be drawn to Jesus. Verses 4 to 6 tell us about the method of his ministry. And here again Paul proved faithful. Some preached the gospel to win converts using trickery or guile, just as a salesman would try to trap you in to buying their product. But Paul would have none of those methods. Totally bypassing cheap methods that would diminish the supreme cost that the gospel demands and the supreme wonder that the gospel deserves. What Paul is saying in this is that in his manner, his motives and his method, he proved to be a faithful steward of that which was entrusted to him. See, sometimes the worst errors taught from the pulpits have arisen because the man preaching them has fallen 
into something else, into some sort of immorality and impurity. I've seen it quite often, too often, to be really surprised by it anymore. Those who once were sound and orthodox in the teaching of the scriptures begin to waver in their commitment to the scriptures. And when you begin to probe, what's going on? Why are they moving from the scriptures? You soon discover that their lives have shifted slightly to accommodate some kind of sin. And having made that accommodation in their lives, it's not long before their teaching follows suit. But not so with the Apostle Paul. His teaching and his life were constrained by the word of God. Neither, he says, was there any attempt to deceive. He's not faking it. There's no insincerity. This is a picture, isn't it? A picture of a life and a message that fit together well. Paul's transparency is beautiful. I wonder if you can say the same about yourselves. Are your lives open books in which the gospel can be read and seen? St Francis of Assisi said those words, and I think I've used them before, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. In their context, the words are true, but I would hasten to add that words are very necessary. What it does remind us, though, is that sharing the gospel is not about just getting words across, although that's vital. It's about living the life. The gospel has to be lived as well as told. It has to be taught. It has to be caught as well. And that's what Paul is getting at in his example Secondly, these verses describe Paul as a nurturing mother in verses 7 to 8. In the first, if the first emphasis in this second chapter is upon faithfulness, then Paul's second emphasis is upon gentleness. The first is upon what Paul did with the message as a man of authority. This second one focuses upon how Paul lived out the message as a man of love. Now, the word picture Paul uses here is not at all hard to understand. He talked of himself and spoke about his own ministry as being like that of a mother, a nursing mother caring for her children. It's reminiscent of the tender picture that the Lord gives of himself in our first reading from Isaiah 49. Did you pick up on that? Asking that question, can a mother forget the child she bore? No. Even so, says the Lord, I will not forget you. I have engraved your names on the palms of my hands. There are other references in Isaiah uh, to God the shepherd uh, carrying his children close to his heart giving that feminine image of God's tender care for his people. Nursing mother has, of course, an incredibly close bond with the child. And so Paul and these young believers were intimately bound up together in that loving bond. 
A nursing mother eats food which is transformed into nourishment for her, her child. So Paul was able to take what God had given to him and share that with these new believers. A nursing mother provides her child with milk and so Paul was able to provide the milk of the word of God by which they would be able to grow. A nursing mother with great patience and often with much sacrifice totally devotes herself in love and cares for and protects the child she feeds and so did Paul loving and caring and protecting and nurturing these babes in Christ so that they could grow and become strong, mature. It might sound strange to your ears uh, to hear the bold and fearless Apostle Paul talk in this way, comparing himself to a mother. But this is not an evidence of weakness. This is an indication that when a man comes to Christ, his manliness does not become conformed to the image of the world, but to the image of Christ He who could weep. He who could bless the children. He who was gentle and patient with his disciples, even washing their feet, loving them, giving his life for them. Wipe from your minds that Jesus was therefore a wimp that he backed off from being tough or being courageous. All of these aspects are so clear in his life. Standing up to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at great risk took great courage. Going all the way to death on a cross, submitting himself to the torture of the Romans and of the cross. But all this reminds us that in his dealings with people, Jesus displayed a compassion and a gentleness and an empathy for sinners first revealed in his willingness to be baptised alongside them, even though he had no sin of his own to confess. See, ministry that's not completed in the spirit of gentleness Ministry that does not reflect the nature of Christ who bore the towel and washed the feet of his disciples is not how ministry should be done. That makes me ask this question. Is that the kind of church that we are? Are we the kind of place that Paul is talking about here? The kind of church that listens to each other with humility. It has a willing spirit of service. Is there a humility and a gentleness that dominates our lives together? It's a really good test. When you love someone, you're anxious to hear them, to know what they care about. Is that how we are with one another? That's what the text would ask us of. Ask of us. And third, to balance out the picture completely, verses 9 to 12, Paul speaks of himself as a concerned father. 
The fact that he uses the terms father and mother is significant for this reason, but it indicates that he was a parent to these believers who became his spiritual children through the gospel. Paul often spoke of this when writing to some younger colleagues like Timothy and Titus. He called them sons, although not physically related to them. The gospel does that, doesn't it? By believing that we are not only united to Christ, but we're united together as a family. We become a family. We become family to each other. And in some cases, the family relationship surpasses all family ties. Well, that's how it was with Paul. And these believers, as verses 9 to 12 remind us, reminding us of a couple of ways in which Paul's spiritual fatherhood was expressed before these believers. According to verse 9, one way was by his work. Uh, Paul refused to be a financial burden upon those whom he taught the gospel. So to finance his own way in order to live and continue to make the gospel available, Paul worked hard at his tent-making trade with much effort and diligence night and day. In other words, he worked at two full-time jobs with the tent-making enabling the preaching to go on free of charge, such was his desire, that nothing hinder his from making the claims of Christ clear. Then according to verse 10, his fatherly concern was shown by his walk. His work and his walk. Fathers are charged with the responsibility of being good examples to their children. And Paul took this seriously, even calling the believers to serve as witnesses that before God, as we've heard, his life had been holy in the sense of pious and righteous and blameless and upright, so no one could point the finger at him and say, you led us astray by your example. And then verses 11 to 12, his fatherly concern was shown by his words. These verses describe the kind of words Paul used. Some were personal words, directed to them as individuals. Others were encouraging words, directed to the whole group that all might be built up. Others were comforting words, to ward off feelings of discouragement and failure. And others were direct words, urging, exhorting the people to action. This is a reminder of I take it for myself of the pastor's task. It is primarily one of teaching and that involves three dimensions for Paul. Verse 12, encouraging, comforting and urging. See, the Christian life is not easy. We all need encouragement. This is a strong word. It's not just soft, kind words, but an exhorting kind of word literally help that puts courage into another. Help that puts courage into another. Most of us appreciate such encouragement giving, being given sensitively, yet fatherlike instruction also needs a sense of urgency. Paul urged them to live lives worthy of God. There is a demanding standard expected of the followers of Jesus. And like in any family, as there can be times when serious things have to be said, which at times can be uncomfortable, but it's that discomfort that has the positive intention that makes it so worthwhile.
Well, so far this morning, you're probably thinking, well, that's all very fine, Philip, but you're preaching to yourself and only yourself. Ministers and others in full-time ministry, sure, someone else, not me. I can understand why you would think that. At first glance, it appears that's to be the case, except in my understanding There's no believer that's not a minister of the gospel. Every believer, every one of us, have a responsibility to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ and serve their fellow believers so that the church functions along the lines of faith, hope and love. And what was the standard for Paul, whose example is a far cry from our holy man in India standing on a block of nails, is also to be your standard. Is it challenging? Absolutely. Is it demanding? Absolutely. And so it's good that the passage ends by drawing us back to God in verse 12, who is the one who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. In all our serving, leading, teaching and helping, it's the calling of God upon us that gives us confidence and hope and the strength to do these things. And what are we aiming for? I'm sure you've all seen Toy Story. I'm sure you have. Maybe not all of you. In the classic final scene of Toy Story, The final scene shows the hero toy Woody riding on the back of another toy, Buzz, who's holding onto a toy rocket flying through the air. They're attempting to get back to their owner, back to Andy, who's in the car ahead of them, being followed by the rest of the toys in a moving van. And all that's happened that's thwarted them in getting to that moving van is part and parcel of the story. So as these two are speeding by on the rocket, Woody shouts out to Buzz, Buzz, we're going to miss the truck. To that Buzz responds, you know the line, we're not aiming for the truck, we're aiming for Andy. And with that they bypass the truck and they land right next to Andy through the sunroof of the car. Well, like Buzz, we're not aiming for the truck. We're not aiming to be like Paul. There's a better and a grander vision than that. It's not that Paul is not worth imitating, for he is. But you see, the next slide, Paul was aiming at bigger and better things a bigger and better target than himself. He was aiming right at Jesus. For Jesus is the model that all of us are called to be be like and aim for. And for all of us, nothing less than being like Jesus will do. Will you pray? Pray with me for that. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word with thankful hearts, we thank you for the encouragement that it brings us. 
especially as it points us in the direction of the one whom we should be like. Tells us of Paul who served so faithfully, but he was even aiming at something greater. He was aiming to be like the Lord Jesus. And how much we desperately need that, that his life might be seen in us and his character formed in us, whether we pastor officially or we pastor unofficially, whether we preach officially or we share the gospel unofficially. Help us to remember the example of Paul who loved his people and loved them to such an extent that he not only gave them the gospel but he shared his whole life with them. Help us to be authentic like that, genuine in all our attitudes, in our words, in our deeds. As we'll sing, may the mind of Christ our Saviour live in us from day to day. We pray in his name. Amen.